Well, have you heard of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where all lives have equal value? That's one of the taglines. The largest privately funded foundation in the world. Founded, of course, by Bill and his wife, developers of Microsoft, and it was launched back in 2000. And they have several aims, more than I'm going to mention here today, but globally they want to enhance healthcare and reduce extreme poverty in a variety of ways. They seek to combat malaria and HIV AIDS and tuberculosis. They want to come up with a vaccine for pneumonia, come up with some cures for various types of cancers, as well as have libraries, not just in this country, but around the globe to increase education uh, to make housing affordable in this country and other places. And so there's a lot that this foundation does. Well, you may have heard back in June of 2006, about 10 years ago, Warren Buffett. I don't know if you know Warren Buffett. He's a good man, man to know, I suppose. He donated $31 billion to the Gates Foundation. $31 billion. I can't wrap my mind around that. This gift, single gift, made Buffett the most generous philanthropist in history to date currently, $31 billion. But in an interview, this is what Warren Buffett said. He says, my gift hasn't changed my lifestyle one bit. I still go where I want to go. I still do what I want to do. I still eat where I want to eat. My life has not changed. He says, the real hero, the true givers are the ones that give and have to sacrifice as a result. Would you agree with that? I would tend to agree with that. You know, we're going through this series that we're entitling Sacrifice. And Mark 8.35 is a key verse we're using over and over for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it or find it. Beautiful, beautiful verse. Well, today in our piece, I want to look, if you brought your Bibles, to Luke chapter 21, a very well-known story about a widow and her two mites. Just four verses. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. And the verses that precede, Jesus is talking about the... <clears throat> teachers of the law and their pride and how they like to be invited here and invited there, how they like to be greeted in the marketplace. But then Jesus is refreshed in chapter 21 of Luke when he looks up. We read in Luke 21, verse 1, and he, Jesus, looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. So here we have the teachers of the law that are more special than they probably ought to think of themselves. At least they think they're quite special. And they're giving gifts. They're not returning tithe. Make special note of that. But these are gifts. These are free will offerings. If we break the word down, we see that to be the case. So this would have been for maintenance for the temple, for the function of the temple. It'd be very much like church budget. And all for a temple that, verse 6, Jesus reminds us, will very soon be destroyed, with not one stone left on another. 
And yet maybe it's not so much about the money or the amount, but the heart and motive of the giver. The necessity to give our means to God. And so he looks and he sees the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And verse 2, and he saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Now widows in that time, and today too, but probably more so in that time, represented the most vulnerable in society. They couldn't make business transactions. There was much that they were not allowed to do. They had few means, few rights, and very often were taken advantage of. Now, that can still be very much the case today, I understand. But here is a widow, a poor widow, and she's putting in two mites, two copper coins worth about one one-hundredth of a day's wage. That's how much, or we could say how little, she had to give. That's about five minutes of minimum wage labor. So it's something, but it's not much. Today, minimum wage is $7 and a quarter. So if we figure eight hours of hard work, that's $58 a day. So in today's money, this would be just 58 cents. Two quarters, a nickel, three pennies there in her hand. Everybody's bringing all of these large amounts and they're clanking them in the coffers and all the rest, making a big to-do about what they are able to do. And she looks in her hand and she just has these two mites. But she wants to contribute. She wants to give all she has to Jesus. She's probably hungry. Her clothes are probably tattered. She has a lot of things that she needs, and you can't get much for 58 cents, but maybe I could get something to put in my stomach. Maybe I could find something on sale. Maybe I could go to Aldi's and get a few cans of beans. I think in this verse, 2 Corinthians 6.10, in description of this poor widow, I think it's fitting, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things because her heart desires to contribute. She longs to be part, to do what she can, as small as that might be. Mother Teresa said this, if you give what you do not need, it's not giving. If you give what you do not need, it's not really giving. It's more like cream off the top. More like leftovers. So here comes this woman, this poor widow. Desire of Ages expands on the story a little bit. It says she approached hesitantly. But she longed to do something for the cause she loved. Little though it might be. Again, she pauses and looks at the gift in her hand. And in comparison to all the giving going on around her, it's nothing. Yet was what for her, it was her all. It was everything. It's all she had. And so she takes it, verse 3, so he's <clears throat> and puts in her two mites. And Jesus sees it. In verse 3, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, 
that this poor widow has put in more than all. What's Jesus saying here? Did he not make it through math class? I mean, we don't expect Jesus to be able to count like they have those machines at the bank. You just put the dollars in and, and the coins and you put them in at Walmart and it gives you your total, the whole bit. But really, she's given more? Are you sure? Truly, in case you doubt, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in how much? All the livelihood that she had. Some have given out of their excess. And they call it giving, but they won't miss it like Warren Buffett with his billions. They give the leftovers. They give the cream off the top. But this woman has given out of the poverty. She has given what little she has. Even though it's all she has to live on, she doesn't know what tomorrow will bring. She doesn't know how she's going to pay for that, how she's going to cover that. I mean, if we really study this down, this is radical self-abandonment, isn't it? I have needs. I know what some of those needs are. I should plan for the future. But no, she abandons all of that. And what we have here is the sacrifice of self-reliance. Jesus calls this real giving. The sacrifice of self-reliance. Society sees this poor woman, this widow, as a non-person culturally. Yet Jesus sees her and her gift as the most significant. Jesus sees things differently than we do, friends. And why is this most significant? Because it's the sacrifice of self-reliance. We tend to appreciate the amount of a gift. That's why we create these big checks. Make sure everybody can read just how much my organization has given. We don't necessarily worry too much about the sacrifice that went in to the giving. In fact, oftentimes we assume there's probably not much sacrifice there, just like there's not much sacrifice here. It's not to say that the rich cannot give appropriately. Zacchaeus does, you remember. He comes to the point where he sacrifices. But the reality is that often it's the underprivileged that know what it means to sacrifice. You can Google, even now, well not now, after you get home, you can Google and you can see the trends of giving and the more the income, the less people tend to give, the percentage of their income. Yet people that make very little, I don't even need to share this, many of you have gone door to door, you know that. You go to the fancy homes for in-gathering or whatever else you're trying to do, and they will turn you away, they'll slam the doors. But the person that's living in substandard housing, yeah, we want to help. Have you found that to be true? They know what it means to sacrifice, to do without. Perhaps they've done without their entire lives. 
but they are willing to give something up for somebody else. Like this poor widow, she's willing to give up for the one she loves. We could talk about the church, we could talk about how it wasn't corrupt, how this gift wouldn't last, and on and on and on. But she wasn't giving for any of those reasons. She was giving because Jesus had asked her to, and she wanted to be part. The sacrifice of self-reliance. All these of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. That's how the rich do. That's how we do in America. We give out of our abundance. To be seen, to be honored by men. How much for that brick? Yeah. What's the next size up? Oh, honey, did you hear that? We're going to have to think about it. Their large donations deny them no comfort or luxury. In fact, let me ask you, when is the last time your church donation truly cost you? When's the last time you really felt what you gave? Suffered for what you gave? Did without because of your church giving? Do we in America even know what that is? When is the last time you sacrificed self-reliance? I mean, this goes contrary to everything we've ever known, doesn't it? Be responsible, your parents used to say. Be self-reliant. Prepare for the future. Now, those aren't bad things. But I would submit to you that oftentimes we prepare for the future, Christian friends, in the wrong way. Had to put my finger away. We prepare in the wrong way. We think if we have a bank account big enough, we can prepare for the future. And Jesus says in the future, your bank account will be meaningless. It won't mean anything. We prepare in the wrong way. As long as I'm fully self-sufficient, self-reliant, think about where that leads. I'm self-sufficient, I'm self-reliant, I no longer need God for anything. I no longer need to trust God for anything. I no, need, no, no longer need to have faith in God for anything because my bank account is there. You can bail me out anytime I need it to. Whatever the problem is, I'll just charge it. And I think that describes perfectly the atrophied state of our country today. I think it describes perfectly the atrophy state of our churches today. It describes the Laodicean attitude we have today. We don't need God. We don't need Bible study. We don't need prayer. We don't need church. We don't need faith because I have cash. I have my credit card. I have houses and land and cars. I have stuff. And we wonder why the church isn't growing in North America because we have stuff. We don't know what it means to sacrifice. I have more than enough food on my plate. It goes bad in my pantry because I didn't eat it fast enough. And in fact, I snack throughout the day to forgo the risk of even feeling slightly hungry when the world is starving to death. We don't know what it means to sacrifice. We're self-reliant. 
But sure, I'll give something to the church. I'll give him the leftovers. Not my best, you understand, just the rest. But not this widow. Not this widow. This widow is willing to be spent that Jesus would be glorified. We looked at this already in this series. And I'll very gladly be spent, <clears throat> will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Is what Paul says. This widow is echoing the same thing. I'm willing to spend and be spent for the gospel, for Jesus Christ, for his glory, for his honor, not my own. Desire of Ages <clears throat> tells us this, the sacrifice of self-reliance. The poor widow gave her living to do the little that she did. She gave her living. She deprived herself of food in order to give those two mites to the cause she loved. And she did it in faith, believing that her heavenly father would not overlook her great need. It was this unselfish spirit and childlike faith that won the Savior's commendation. What Jesus said was true. This woman had put in more than all the, the others and all the rest. Her influence outstretched that of the rich Jews like a stream, small in the beginning, but widening and deepening as it flows. So the widow's two mites have inspired and acted upon thousands in every land, in every age. Down to 2016, we're still talking about her. She's still inspiring people. And it's appealed to both the rich and the poor. Friends, God's blessing has swelled on the widow's gift. Would you agree? I would wager to say there is no limit to the two mites placed in the hands of God. Give him your all. See what he can do with two mites. In case you're confused, God doesn't really care about the money anyway. It's all his to begin with. It was God's blessing upon the widow's might that made it the source of great results. And so it is with every gift bestowed and every act performed with a sincere desire for God's glory, it results for good are immeasurable. Expound. Maybe you're feeling uncomfortable because this is a sermon a little bit about money. We don't talk too much about money, but Jesus talked about it an awful lot. Because he knew that where our heart was, or I should say he knew where our money was, there our heart would be also, right? They're connected. But friends, I would tell you that God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need it. He longs for your heart. A heart willing to sacrifice for him to sacrifice our selfishness, our self-reliance, our self-sufficiency, and to place all trust in Him. Psalm 50, verse 10, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. They're mine, says the Lord. Verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all of its fullness. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't but he wants your heart. 
We see it again in Haggai 2, verse 8. These are a few examples of many. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. God says, I have given you what is mine so you can give it back as a means to purge yourself from your own selfish heart. But it's mine to begin with. And quite frankly, I don't need it, but I need your heart. I need you. You need to give it. Turn me to another verse. Malachi chapter 3. If you can find the Gospels, you can find Malachi. Go to Matthew and then just back up a little bit. Matthew chapter 3, well-known verses in Scripture. Malachi chapter 3, beginning verse 8. It says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what ways have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. Now, time out right there. I thought that offerings were optional. I returned tithe. It was his to begin with, so I go ahead and give that 10%. But I thought offerings were optional. But here it says, you have robbed me in two ways, in tithes and in offerings. Friends, when we don't give offerings, we're saying, God, I have nothing to be thankful for. You haven't blessed me at all. Isn't that what we're essentially saying? I give you only what is yours, but the rest is for me, myself, and I. You haven't blessed me. I'm keeping the offering. And yes, we're robbing God. We're robbing God of the opportunity to bless us above and beyond and abundantly what he could otherwise. We're robbing God. How we robbed you with tithes and offerings. Verse 9 you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Then the challenge, verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me, test me, prove me in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Do we believe that verse? If not, we need to rip it out of our Bibles. You know, there's another place that windows in heaven, we see it. Do you know where it is? Genesis 7, verse 11. talks about the windows of heaven were opened, and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And then later down in Genesis 7, verse 20, it talks about how the waters covered the tallest mountain. I believe God is saying here when he says, see if I will not open up the windows of heaven. I think he's saying, the way I flooded the earth, I will open the windows of heaven and cover every mountain, every need that you have, I'll take care of it. Test me, prove me in this. Don't believe me? Give it a shot and see what happens. And then verse 11, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. So he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. I will rebuke the devourer. You know, locusts could completely come in and destroy a crop in a day. No problem. We get our groceries from around the world. It doesn't matter anymore. Back then, devastation. He says, I'll rebuke the devourer. Friends, God can speak to animals and they obey. He can speak to a donkey, and the donkey can speak. 
He can tell the rocks to speak, and they speak. Your car that was supposed to run for another 60 years, he can make it run for another 16 years if he wants to. He says, I will rebuke the devourer of your clothes. They won't wear out. You won't accidentally bleach them. You won't somehow get them tattered, get oil. I'll just take care of you, he says. I'll rebuke the devourer of your health. No more copays times six, times six for our family. When something comes through, he says, you just, you're not going to get it this time. Now, is this the prosperity gospel, pastor? Is this what you were talking about a few weeks ago? No, I don't believe it is. This is trusting God with my every need, period. He says, you don't need that big house anymore? I trust him with that. He says, you don't need that fancy car anymore? I trust him in that. But it's trusting God to provide for my needs, to cover the mountaintops of my needs. Doesn't mean I'm going to have all the wants. But sometimes those wants are going to take me straight to hell anyway. He says, I'll give you what you need. I'll take care of you. I'll rebuke the devourer. Test me in this. When the widow contributed her two copper coins, she communicated an appreciation and a trust for God that's open to all. But sadly, few of us ever experience. Friends, what's in your hands today? What's God asking you to give? Now, Jack was up here. He was talking about this capital campaign that we started. Invitations are going to go out on Monday to tell you a little bit about this business meeting and invite you to a banquet. Oh, yeah, I know about these banquets. They're going to ask us for money. Yep, we are. We're going to lay out a plan where everybody can give. Whether it's two million or two mites, I don't care. That's between you and God. I don't honestly care. I don't care. But is God asking you to sacrifice something for his temple, for his church, for his cause? November 12th, I'm going to be talking more about this as we go on, but we're going to be collecting an annual sacrifice offering, completely different. This will be to go to frontline mission work. It's been happening in our church for years and years and years and years. It's kind of been lost sight of, but for frontline mission work, where you say, okay, I'm going to sacrifice, and I'm hoping we can get prayer bands around this church for that whole week and literally have a week of prayer and be asking and fasting and praying, Lord, what do you want me to give for frontline work? When is my money worth nothing anymore, and is it now, and how much do you want me to give? That's coming up November 12th. Start praying about it. Again, I don't care if it's two million or two mites. I don't care. It's between you and God. But again, I don't think God's concerned about the money, but he's concerned about our hearts, about my heart, about my selfishness. My pride, my ego, my self-reliance. Am I willing to trust God to the extent that I have to sacrifice? Not just with my leftovers. But are, is Elizabeth and I, are Elizabeth, how did I say that? Are, are Elizabeth and I willing, that's the question, to give sacrificially to Christ and his cause? That's the question. That's what we're praying about. And what does that sacrifice look like? like for us in our home. I like this 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 9, 7.
Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, her heart, not grudgingly or of, nece- uh, or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you're not going to give it cheerfully, just keep it, friends. Just keep it. But purpose in your own heart. Lord, what do you want me to give? What do you want me to do? I believe we can't outgive God. And it doesn't mean that we'll never have a problem. It doesn't mean we'll never experience a financial crisis. But it means he'll give you what you need when you need it. That he will open the windows of heaven and bless you. Financially, yes, I believe he'll provide for you. But spiritually, he'll give you peace and assurance and hope. He will guide your life and your big life decisions. He'll bless your family, your business, everything. I believe he will bless you if you give sacrificially. I'm going to invite Phyllis Albany to come up here. She didn't know she was going to do this, this until this morning because she has a story that I'd like for her to share. It's kind of a two-mite story, if you will. It's connected to finances, certainly, but it's connected to some other things, too. Um, so, Phyllis, tell us a little bit uh, what's taken place here in just the last few weeks. Okay, um, first I need to go back just a little bit. Um, back in 2000 and I guess around five, I was talking to this lady about uh, purchasing a home and um, it sounded like really good idea and very promising but um, I took a different direction and um, in 2008 I did something a little different. I, I did purchase a home but and um, I ended up losing it in 2010 through foreclosure. And so um, the opportunity came again through this agency. Some of you may know the name of it, uh, Housing Assistance. It's sort of like Habitat. Well, um, I approached them again and uh, inquired about getting a home. And, um, you know, we I filled out all the paperwork and everything with the office manager. and. Everything was approved, and what happens if, is a group of families get together to build each other's homes. And so in my group, there are six families, and um, at one of the meetings that we had, um, the office manager told, told us to write down, you know, like the days we were available to work. And the, the original days were Tuesday, Thursdays and Saturdays and I don't know when I was in the office manager's office I I told him I said well I can't work on Saturdays and he just kind of brushed it you know brushed it off and so time went on and at this meeting we had I wrote down I can write I can work um some Saturdays. Now, <laughs> I knew very well in my heart that I wasn't going to work on Saturday because Saturday is the Sabbath. 
And so um, about the end of July, we started working on the homes. And um, I, did, I showed up on Tuesday. I showed up on Thursday. But I didn't show up at all on Saturdays. And so we've been working on the homes, let's see, July, August, September. And so word got back to the office supervisor that I wasn't showing up on Saturdays for work. And so um, some of the family members were just kind of curious and wondering why I wasn't you know, showing up on Saturday. Curious, you're kind. I bet you they were a little more incurious. Here what? we're working on our weekend and Phyllis is not here, right? Right. I mean, right. I don't know them, but I'm thinking that might be what they're thinking besides just curious, but go on. Oh yeah, yeah, they were, yeah. They was wondering why are we showing up and she's not here? And so, um, the office supervisor, I was at work and he called me and left a message. <laughs> and he said, you know, he wanted to talk to me. <clears throat> what did you think when you got that message? Oh, um, I just, I didn't ever call him back. I mean, I didn't call him back right away. Did he, you know what it was about? Um, well, yeah, I knew, it was, I knew what it was about. <laughs> so you knew you were in trouble? Oh yeah, I knew I was in trouble. And so, um, I finally, well, I said, let me call Pastor Wright, because I wasn't quite sure how I was going to respond and, you know, what I was going to say. And so, I called Pastor Wright and explained to him what was going on. And that was just a week ago yesterday, right? Uh, right, right. That you called, yeah. Right, a week ago yesterday, right. And so, um, Pastor Wright gave me some good advice, and we pr he prayed with me, and, um, um, so you were going, as I recall that conversation, you said, okay, I'm going to stand for this Sabbath. Now, this, there's a lot at stake here. Let's stop and think about this. She's been trying to get in a home for a long time. She's lost a home. She's finally got this opportunity again. She finally went through all this approval process, which is a big process. Right. You're, right. you're finally, and you're working. And let's also make sure, we let, make sure they understand. You were getting all of your hours in, just you were getting them in on Tuesday and Thursday, but not on Saturday. Right, I was making up extra hours on those other two days. Yes. And so you were appealing to him, well, I can work on other days. I can, and have you told us about that conversation yet? Maybe I'm getting ahead of you here. Well, um, because I know in one phone conversation, you told him, I can work on Sundays. And what did he tell you? Oh, he said, no, uh, that's not possible because um, the, uh, the construction supervisor, he goes to church on Sunday. Oh, okay. And yeah. he said, he also said 90% of the people go to church on Sunday. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm not that 90%. <laughs> and you even testified a little bit from what you told me. You told him, no, the seventh day is the Sabbath. Right. And you went around about that a little bit, didn't you? Right. I said, um, no, none of us should be working on, this, on, Sabbath, on Saturday because that's the, that's the true Sabbath. And, you, well, you know, <laughs> well, we well, kind of well, we, well. yeah, we went, went about in that conversation. And um, so... He said, well, let me check with my higher-ups and um, with the construction supervisor and just, you know, we're, we're going to have a meeting. Hmm. And so um, Friday, yesterday was our meeting. This is stress. Very, very stressful. Very, Who's very at that stressful. meeting? Um, okay, all six families are there and the two construction supervisors and... Um, the office manager. You're in big trouble. Yeah, I'm in big trouble. And, and, and you know, 
I'm kind of scared because I'm, I'm feel like they're gonna, uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna be able to build a home with them, and so I'm, I'm you know, I wasn't quite sure what, I, just what to expect. And so as I was driving over to the meeting yesterday, I prayed, and um, four out of the families that are building homes, they're Hispanics, and so they, every, they walked in the office um, for the meeting yesterday, and they were, they were all talking, and I could understand a word they were saying. So I'm thinking, hmm, I was wondering, you know. More they, stress. Yeah, more stress. And so um, uh, the uh, office manager handed out the sheets. He handed out the sheets and um, said, well, this is going to be the, the new schedule, the new plan for, for us to build these homes. I mean, to work uh, 13 hours a week on these homes. And um, I looked at the sheet and, wow, to my surprise, he has from um, us working on Tuesdays, us working on Mondays and Thursdays. And I look at Saturday and it has off all the way down the <laughs> column. Everybody's off, not just me. You see that, all the dark and the work days and it says off all the way there. Yeah. 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 And so I said, praise the Lord. <laughs> when was this meeting? Yesterday. Five o'clock yesterday was this meeting. Right. Was that a blessing to you? Yes, it was a, yes. You, you wouldn't believe how much of a blessing. Has that strengthened your faith? It has. It, it really has. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Phyllis, for sharing with us. Isn't that inspiring? And so often I wonder how many of those blessings we don't receive because we don't put in our two mites. We don't sacrifice. We just want to only give God the cream off the top, and I'll keep Sabbath, I'll return tithes and offerings, all these things, only if it's convenient, only if it, you know, doesn't require me to give anything up. But when we have the faith to give something up, now it doesn't always work out that way. God sometimes has other plans and other ideas, and that's okay too. But how many blessings do we just forego? Because we're not faithful. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And how does it end? All these things will be added unto you. Seek God first. Again, back to this verse. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, whoever's willing to give up this dream of a house for my sake and the Sabbath, paraphrase we'll save it we'll keep it and we'll be blessed I believe Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice and he's asking you and I if we're willing to sacrifice as well dear heavenly father your son Jesus truly gave all for us and now you ask us to give in response. Lord, I pray that you will create in us an attitude, a mindset that we will be willing to sacrifice for you, for your cause, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.